Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit in class with Scott McKnight? Ever wonder how deepening your theological education might impact your life or ministry? Well, Northern would like to help give you a taste of what it would be like to study at Northern. That's why on the week of February 5th, we're having a week of free classes. Come join us in person for a class like Leadership in an Urban Ministry Context, or try our Northern Live Learning Platform and sit in on Scott McKnight's New Testament Contextual Theology class. Whatever you choose, learn more and sign up at seminary.edu slash taste. Looking forward to seeing you there for our Taste of Northern. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a lecture from Scott on kingdom conspiracy, where he'll talk about returning to the radical mission of the local church. I want to talk about kingdom, and this is a very distracting day because there are two Cub fans sitting right here. (laughs) The most Christian thing you can do is cheer for the Cubs. (laughs) It is a sign of hope. You cheer for the Yankees, I mean, that's, that's living in the past. They win. It's not even Christian to be that conquering as the Yankees. So, cruciform life is shaped by cheering for the Cubs. And I'm more comfortable that Sean has moved away from right here. And I told Sean today that I was going to be more Church of Christ today than he can be. We're going to find out. That's going to be my attempt today. So... I want to uh, talk with you about kingdom. This is from yesterday. I talked from a book of mine on the gospel called The King Jesus Gospel. And this lecture today, or this discussion, not much discussion really, is there? Uh, I'll go back and forth with myself here. So, uh, is from a book called Kingdom Conspiracy. And uh, as I said, I don't care if you read them as long as you buy them. And that would help. So I want to start by talking about getting the kingdom back into the Bible. Getting the kingdom back into the Bible because many people talk about the kingdom and at many times I like to think they have nothing to do with what the Bible is actually saying about the kingdom nor have they actually looked at what the Bible says about the kingdom. So... Uh, The first section, we'll look at getting the kingdom back in the Bible, but I'd like to uh, begin uh, with the ruling image of the book. Uh, It started, uh, I was at a pastor's conference, and when I was done speaking, a pastor called me off into a hallway just off the uh, auditorium, and he looked at me and he said, what in the world does kingdom mean? Now, in my head, as a seminary professor, I wanted to say, that is one thing you should have figured out by now as a pastor, but okay, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on in this conversation. And then he said, he said, all the skinny jeans pastors in my church use the word kingdom. And he said, it sounds to me like they mean social justice. 
And, you know, I gave him one of those Mona Lisa smiles, you know. <laughs> and he said, but what do I know? They say I'm Mr. Pleated Pants. So I want to talk about a skinny jeans kingdom theory and a pleated pants kingdom theory. And what do the skinny jeans kingdom people mean when they talk about kingdom? And if you've paid attention to this, a lot of the skinny jeans wearing people, Sean, you're not wearing skinny jeans, are you? Okay. I would have you model walk up here a little bit, but I won't, since you gave me such a hard time yesterday. Uh, but uh, I've paid attention to how this word is used, and as a Bible guy, I'm always thinking, well, okay, it's fine, you say what you want, but I'm, I'm a Bible guy, and I want to I use my important biblical words as close to the way the Bible uses them as I can. So I've paid attention, and here's the way I think skinny jeans people understand the kingdom. They use it when they say, or they're saying, when good people do good things in the public sector for the common good. That's kingdom work. When good people do good things in the public sector, it's kingdom. All right? That's for the common good. That's kingdom work. I was having a conversation. Uh, I gave a presentation, and another scholar, you've probably never heard of him, his name is Tom Wright, uh, was the respondent. A lot of people go by N.T. Wright, but, I mean, his name is Tom, so. But don't say I, next year, he might be here. That's the, that's the rumor. But don't say that I said that, okay? But I had a footnote in my paper, and in the, in the footnote, it said, note to self, did Gandhi do kingdom work? And I wanted, to th I wanted to think about whether I wanted to use this in something I was writing. And it became a, a section in Kingdom Conspiracy. Did Gandhi do kingdom work? Well, said Tom Wright, uh, when, when he saw that, he jumped on it and said he thought, he thought Gandhi did kingdom work. And I don't think Gandhi did kingdom work. Gandhi knew what Christianity was and he didn't want anything to do with it. In essence, he did not want to believe in Jesus as Messiah and atoning instrument in God's work in this world. So um, that, that is a very common question. If you can ask the question, did Gandhi do kingdom work? I think you can ferret out what someone's view of the kingdom is. But the skinny jeans kingdom people all think that Gandhi did kingdom work because he did good work in the public sector for the common good. And he did. And I love what he did. I love the peace and nonviolent approach that Mahatma Gandhi brought into the public sector, into the international scene, and into international relations. It was great work. The question is whether that's kingdom work. Now, other people, these people who wear pleated pants, I'm in between today. So people who wear pleated pants don't talk about, so much about social justice as the skinny jeans people do. And I will emphasize, it's very important to do social justice. It's very important for Christians to be involved in doing compassion 
And Christians who are not doing compassion are not being Christian. All right, so I believe in that. But that doesn't mean it should be called kingdom work. Kingdom for the social justice crowd has become the ultimate justifier, legitimator, and religious sanctifier of what they do. It gives it ultimate meaning in the work of God in this world to be involved in making the world a better place. Water for Africa, you know, uh, helping with tornado victims in the Midwest, worrying about hurricane disasters in the world. That's all very important, but that doesn't make a kingdom work. Nor is that the way the Bible uses the word kingdom, but we'll get to that. All right, the pleated pants people don't talk like this about the, the kingdom. I, I say that their general idea is that the kingdom of God is the unleashing of God's redemptive work in the world. It's when redemption is unleashed. So it gets connected to the doctrine of salvation. This gets connected to the doctrines of creation and social justice and social ethics. Whereas these people are connected to the theme of redemption, which is good. And, and that's good. So these are both good ideas, but they're not biblical enough to be biblical, uh, if you know what I mean. So they're half a story or a third of a story. So I see it in three ways. Some people talk about kingdom work when someone uh, personally responds to Jesus as their king or lord, and they surrender their lives. So evangelism for some people, uh, and especially in the 1990s, evangelism was talked about as kingdom work. That's good. All right. The charismatics among us see kingdom work as the unleashing of redemption for healing and miracles. And so the vineyard people are very big on the word kingdom, but if you listen to them very long, they're talking about miracles happening in the here and now as the inbreaking of the kingdom of God now. That's a redemptive movement. Now there's a third group in here, and they're very touchy. Uh, they're called Kuyperians, so you have to be careful. They're reformed, and they can defend themselves quite well. But the reformed see the task of the Christian uh, to be involved in all the major sectors of society, education, politics, international relations, local government, uh, church is one of those, uh, family, education, these sorts. And Christians are to get into these spheres, Abraham Kuyper called them spheres of sovereignty, they're to be involved in each of these spheres and bring a Christian influence in a redemptive way to that specific sphere, education. So they bring uh, a Christian perspective and an orientation and they try to steer and move the educational system toward Christian values and Christian ideas. And this generates the moral majority and progressive political uh, action by um, other Americans. So they're all sort of a Kuyperian. Now the progressives tend to be Niburian, if you want to get technical, and they do. So I brought that in just in case they're listening. <laughs> but all three of these see redemption as the primary theme of the kingdom of God. All right? And this group sees it as social ethics and justice. And I want to say that each of these is saying something valuable about the kingdom of God 
each of them is missing two or three very significant elements of the kingdom of God, and therefore, as a result, church is de-emphasized at times in this group, and it's nearly always de-emphasized on this side. All right? And I cannot believe that Jesus, who came not to make the world a better place, but to bring the kingdom of God and to establish his church, could be asking people to do kingdom work that would have nothing to do with the church. It just can't happen. All right? So this concerns me of what's going on. And if you're listening and watching in your churches, you're seeing an increasing number of young American Christians whose commitment now is in the public sector to social justice at the expense of their commitment to the church. And now, it's great to be involved here, but not at the expense of the church, especially when this is seen as what is the ultimate religious justifier of what they're doing. That's where I think we need to challenge on the basis of what the Bible has to say. Some people today are comparing kingdom and church in ways that are deeply disturbing to me. And I want to read to you a section from a pastor's blog. And you know, blogs are infallible moments of insight and genius. <laughs> but when a pastor writes anything on a blog, he or she knows what they're doing. Because it's public, and, it, and the elders could be knocking on the door tomorrow. So if a pastor writes this, I take it to be serious on his part. And he has established some categories uh, uh, in comparing kingdom and church. He says, though the church and its activities can fit into the kingdom, you cannot squeeze the kingdom into the church. When we try to fit the kingdom into our church box... Listen to that language. Put the word box with church and you lose. You know, I mean, that's rhetoric designed to negate. But when we try to fit the kingdom into our church box, we create church people instead of kingdom people. And there is, he says, a huge difference between the two. What might that be? Glad you asked. That's what he was talking about. Church people, he says, have reduced ministry vision and can't see past church-bound categories for ministry, like usher, greeter, children's worker, inviter of lost friends. Not that those things are all that bad, myself, but... Kingdom people, though, have kingdom vision to think and dream and act outside the box, which is the church. They want to heal the wounds in their neighborhood, workplace, and community. And they work with fatherlessness and addictions and marriages. Church people see the gospel in terms of good news about the afterlife. It's how you can be sure you're going to heaven after you die. But kingdom people see the gospel in terms of good news about the kingdom life. It's about life in God and with God both now and forever. Church people understand discipleship is primarily about enjoying a closer relationship with God that grows me to spiritual maturity. 
kingdom people understand discipleship as the call to lose their life for Christ's sake so they can participate in his family for his mission. The kingdom, he says, is not a means to a bigger church. The church is a means to demonstrating the kingdom. All right. When you talk like this, you set up categories that church is bad, kingdom is good. This is the ideal, and this is less than the ideal. And so when you compare kingdom uh, to church this way, the church loses every time. All right? So the kingdom is something good, and the church, unfortunately, is what we've got. And so we're going to be committed to the kingdom and not to the church. My Bible teaches that Jesus came to create the body of Christ, the church. And that is a glorious thing that he came to establish. And any kind of theology that devalues the church at the expense of the kingdom is saying bad things about the bride of Christ. And it is unworthy of ministers and theologians and Christians to talk like this about the church. The church, yeah. A friend of mine wrote a post on my blog. The church is a leaky boat, he said. But it's the best thing afloat. All right. I think he's right. It's not perfect. But here's the problem. When you turn the kingdom into an ideal, a sort of utopia, and the church into less than that, and start comparing them, you, you, the church loses every time. So let me make some theoretical observations here on something that we have to learn to compare well. And it's this. New Testament theologians, who frequently talk in language that no one can understand, they talk about things like eschatological existence. And you just go, now that will light up a sermon every Sunday morning. <laughs> Is that right? Sean, you ever use eschatological existence? Just twice. Just twice. <laughs> and then you were at another church after yeah. that? Okay. All right. Here's, here's the thing. The kingdom of God is what we call inaugurated eschatology. And what we mean by that is this. That when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom and left. And he will return again and the kingdom will become consummated. So we live between the ages of the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom at the end. Is that understandable? All right. Everybody who teaches New Testament and studies academic theology knows that this is how we understand the kingdom. Sometimes Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Matthew 12, 28, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. But he also says in Mark 14, 25, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine with you again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So the kingdom seems to be now and not yet. All right, we all agree on that, all right? The church is also an inaugurated reality. The church is an inaugurated reality. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. I told you yesterday, I got this new Bible and the pages don't turn. Ephesians 5, Galatians, Ephesians, here we are. 
Listen to this. Jesus gave up his life for the church to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her. Now he's using language about the future. To present her to God at the end of time. I've added a little bit. Holy and clean. He did this to present her as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Now, come to my church and you'll say that's not true. Come to your church and you'll say that's not But it will be true. So the church is both a present reality and a future reality. Now, here's my theoretical point. When you compare kingdom to church, don't compare the future kingdom to the present church. That's wrong, theologically. Because you're comparing the consummation of God's work when he perfects what he's done with the reality of the struggle of existence now. But if you want to play this game fairly, you could compare the future church with the present kingdom. And the church will win every time. Because at that time, the church will be perfectly holy and loving and glorious. But the present kingdom is not at least not where I've seen it. So instead, let's compare the present kingdom with the present church and the future kingdom with the future church. And when you compare the future kingdom with the future church in the book of Revelation, you realize it's the same people. The future kingdom is the people of God in Christ It's the bride of Christ adorned for eternity. And the present kingdom is no different than the present church. All right, so I use this language. I learned this from Miroslav Volf. It's cleverer than it is clear. (laughs) The church and the kingdom are not identical, but they're the same. I'm not sure, but I like it. I like it. Because I don't want to say they're identical, but I want to say I know of no kingdom work today that is not done by the church. Because in the end, they will be the same. So they've got to be the same now. Jesus came to build the church. And he connects it with those who are in the church will enter the kingdom. All right. Now that's, that's the big idea. That the church and the kingdom are the same today. And they will be the same then. I'm fully aware that in the history of the churches of Christ, there have been some shenanigans pulled on this one. And my book was not written about that, the shenanigans. So if I overlap with the churches of Christ on this, it's unintentional. Instead, it's because we're both seeking to be biblical. Okay? And if in the history of the churches of Christ, some have equated the kingdom of God with the churches of Christ, only the churches of Christ, which doesn't do very well for me right now, although, <laughs> although I do have honorary membership. So, all right, so 
Um, I understand that and that there has been some developments that you can use different words for uh, in the history of this uh, movement. But the problems that arose in connection with some of the distortions should not mean that the word kingdom should change its meaning or that we should use the word kingdom differently is that we should align ourselves better with what the Bible means by the word kingdom. Right, so it's not about saying, okay, now, because we've had problems with this word kingdom, we're not going to use it anymore. We're going to use it like the skinny jeans people or the Kuyperians and the Burians and the vineyards and the, uh, re uh, the revivalists uh, so that we'll fit in better. That's, that's not going to make the Bible change at all. The Bible doesn't change on, on, this, on this word. It's stuck in time. It's right there. It's not... The words aren't changing at all. So I want to look at what the Bible means by the word kingdom. And I'm going to contend with you that there are five elements to the word kingdom in the Bible. And if I, if I am right on these, then I will ask Sean Palmer a question at the end to see if he lives up to the churches of Christ. So pay attention, brother. No sleeping. Huh? Are we betting? I think, you know, I don't know how that works. Okay. The first is that, okay, here's a, here's a thumbnail definition. This, this is not point one. Just keep this in your head. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. I might think that's simple, but it throws this one right here completely out of kilter. The redemptive side. You see, a kingdom is a people governed by a king. They didn't talk about people at all. And this group makes the people the United States or the Western world or the world. All right. But a kingdom is a people governed by a king. Just as an empire is a people ruled by an emperor. All right. So a kingdom is a people governed by a king. A kingdom has five elements. The first, for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king. There must be a king. In the narrative of the Bible, the king is the God of Israel who becomes incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ, called Messiah. Son of God, a kingly word. Uh, son of man, also a kingly world, word. And in this narrative of the Bible, which comes to climax in the fact that the gospel declares that Jesus is the Messiah, we have to have a narrative of reading the Bible that will lead us there. And here's how this narrative works. At one time I called it Plan A, Plan B, and Plan A revised. And my friend Tom told me, it sounds like God changes his mind. So I don't believe God changes his mind, but he kind of adjusts. So I now use these terms, theocracy, monarchy, and Christocracy. All right, here's what it is. From Genesis 1 to 1 Samuel 8, God rules the people. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel comes to Yahweh and he says, they want a king. And 
He feels really bad about this. He thought he was doing a pretty good job. You know, they want a new preacher. You know. <laughs> and I think my sermons are good. And Yahweh says amazingly to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. We'll give them a king. And you watch what happens. So we go from theocracy to a monarchy where we have a king. It doesn't take long and it's just like dumb and dumber all over again. You just watch it. It's just craziness. Solomon, as Brother Preacher reminded us the other night, has, has more than his fair share. All right? So it's a mess. But this messy period is actually a rebuking disciplinary period for Israel because they are supposed to be ruled by God. But they're ruled by a man. And so God sends a God-man who is the is Christocracy, the rule of the Messiah. That's the narrative of the Bible. So it's all, the whole narrative of the Bible is that God wants to be king over his people. All right? So that's the point one is we have to have a king. Second, for there to be a king, the king must rule. There are people on the internet who claim to be kings, but no one's following. So they don't rule. But the rule of the Bible is a double kind of rule. And this is where the pleated pants people have something really important to contribute to the conversation, though I think they've used it to overwhelm everything else. And that is, the rule of God in the Bible is first of all, redemptive rule. In the pages of the Bible, God redeems Abraham through a covenant. He redeems Moses and the children of Israel through Passover, through the Red Sea, through the giving of the law, through 40 years, forever and ever, and then they get to enter the Jordan River. But the great act is deliverance from Egypt. It's redemptive that gives them this covenant relationship with Yahweh so they can follow the Torah. And in the New Testament, Jesus dies for our sins to bring all of this to its fullness. So it's a redemptive rule. Now here's the problem here. You cannot bring the kingdom of God into the public sector without the redemption of God as the foundation of the ethic. Alright? But this is, this is taking the New Testament ethic of Jesus and turning it into a public variant. And always it is secularized and it is minimized in the Lordship of Christ, the theme of redemption, and the church gets eliminated and replaced by the American government. So, the rule of God is redemptive. Secondly, the rule of God is by way of governing. God rules by saving and then ruling over those whom he's saved. So there's two dimensions to the rule. So this is good on the redemptive side. They've brought a very important theme to the discussion. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. There has to be a king King Jesus. He rules by saving and lording over these people as the Lord. Third, there has to be a people. Kings need people for it to turn into a kingdom. And 
I would encourage you to open up your Old Testament, find a concordance. If you still use those things or have some kind of internet thing that'll boot up every time the word kingdom is used in the Old Testament, and it invariably means nation. It never means salvation. It always means a nation. And the sin, you know how Hebrews write. They can't use one word, they have to use two. So a, 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 this will be a nation who does his will, it will be a kingdom of God's people. So they do a parallels all the time. The most natural parallel to the word kingdom in the Old Testament, malkut in Hebrew, basileia in the Greek version, is the word nation. So it's a people. Josephus uses this word kingdom 400 times. Every time it means nation. This group of people has eliminated nation, has eliminated people. So it becomes redemption. This people has eliminated the redemption theme and has turned it into the public sector theme. All right. So it is a people. In the Old Testament, the people is Israel. In the New Testament, the people is called the church. And we have a major theological issue at work in this movement from Israel to church. And in the history of the church, there has been great, great acts of violence that are disruptive to the narrative of the Bible, and more importantly, have just about deconstructed the capacity for Jews to hear what Christianity was originally was all about. And that is, many people today think that the church replaces Israel. This is called, in theological language, supersessionism. But the Apostle Paul does not believe that. He believes that Israel is a tree, and Gentiles are grafted into the tree. So the church does not replace Israel, it expands Israel. Paul's mission, fellowship of differences, I talked about this, Paul's mission is, is not to get rid of Jews, but to bring Gentiles and Jews together at the table. It is not to uh, erase our Jewish heritage. It is to expand the Jewishness of our heritage. So the church is Israel expanded. One of the reasons, sadly, that we don't, we use the, we we have failed to use the word kingdom properly is because at the end of the 19th century, certain kinds of scholars in Europe decided that if the word kingdom meant Israel and they didn't like Jews, that it couldn't mean Israel, so therefore it couldn't mean people, so therefore it had to mean redemption. And that logic is connected to anti-Semitism in ways that is deeply disturbing to historians. And we need to be aware of this, is that we have devalued Israel uh, and at the, ex at the expense of understanding what God is doing in this world. I'm not talking about the modern state of Israel at all. So the church, uh, the kingdom is a people. Over and over then, the word means nation. Now here's, here's what I'd like to say about the, uh, the presentation I'm making today, and it's this. If I'm right on this third point, then the game changes.
on the meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible. If it means people, then we must ask, who is the people of God today that can be called the kingdom? And we have probably three options. The church, America, or the world. Take your pick. Be biblical and you'll be here. All right. Not that I don't like America. But just in case you'd like to know, I thought I'd say that we should not vest our belief in the redemption of our people on the basis of the party that we vote for in November's. Too many people believe that the kingdom will arrive if we vote for the right president. I've been around long enough to know that that game lasts two years. <laughs> and then we start all over again. We have a brief moments of silence. And then CNN and Fox News crank it back up. And we get to worry about this for two more years. But the apocalyptic rhetoric used by the media is picked up by the church and we begin to think if we vote in the right person that we will bring in the kingdom conditions. That person has come and he's been raised from the dead and he is the one who rules and on November 7th when we get up, Jesus will still be the ruler. Alright? Alright. Hey, hey. You're Anabaptist after all. <laughs> Maybe Sean's going to do okay in my quiz. At the, number four. Number four. All right. It's a, a kingdom is a people governed by a king. You have to have a king. The king has to rule by redemption and governing. And then third, you have to have a people. Fourth, you have to have a law. Kings rule by giving rules for their people. Laws. And in the Old Testament, we have Torah. All right, it's the law of Moses. And this is not something that we need to be embarrassed about. This is God's will for his people Israel at that time. But this will is an ongoing development. If you read the laws and how they adjust and shift to new context and how Israel practiced them, you'll realize that this isn't a once-for-all type thing. It is a, a vision of how God's people should live. And Jesus comes along and he said, this is what Moses said, but I say to you. He's not getting rid of Moses. He's giving Moses a whole new vista to see how to live. So we learn to follow Moses properly as Christians by following Jesus. And if we follow Jesus, the Apostle Paul says... There is no law against us. When we are living in the spirit, the law is saying, now, you're doing far more than ever I could indicate. You know? It's sort of like growing up using a manual typewriter. That's Moses. And now you have an apple. John the Baptist was a PC. <laughs> Got an apple right here in the front row. So Jesus is an apple. But once you type on an apple, you realize you're doing everything the manual typewriter ever wanted you to do and more. But you don't get rid of the manual typewriter because it's embedded in the apple. Is that, is that fair? So that's what we do as Christians. We, 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 use, them, we use apples. 
And if you follow and you use PCs, you know, John the Baptist pointed you to, to an apple. <laughs> it seems so clear to me. <laughs> and I know you agree. So, so we have a law. There is no kingdom without a law. Now this law, this law of Jesus is embedded the way he lives. So it becomes cruciform. It becomes in the shape of the cross. So there is a sensitivity in the political sector about Christians talking about kingdom. There is a sensitivity about with evangelism with Muslims about talking about kingdom. But the kingdom that Jesus brings is not imperialism, it's not conquest, and it's not sword. It's not Constantine. This kingdom is shaped by love and by peace and by justice and sacrificing for the good of another rather than conquering. It is cruciformity uh, rather than what? Swordiformity. I don't know if that's a word, but we, it's a good one. It's a good one. All right. So we have to have a law. And finally, there's a land. There's a land. Fifth. So one, king. Two, rule. Three, people. Four, law. Five, there's a land. Now this one gets difficult. And it gets difficult because the New Testament doesn't seem to care much about the land promise that dominated the pages of the Old Testament. So, uh, and, and I have a little, a little idea about this, and I won't even talk to you if you want to disagree with it. Because I don't know that I'm right, and I don't, I just think that this is a way to look at it, and it's the way I look at it right now, and you can do with it what you want. But land is big in the Old Testament. You can't get rid of it. In the, if, if the Old Testament has a king who's been expanded to be Jesus... And if Israel is the people of the Old Testament and they've been expanded to include the Gentiles, if the temple of the Old Testament has been expanded to be the mobile temple Jesus and that the early Christians are called, you are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, so that the temple has been expanded, I think it's fair to say that the land promise has been expanded, but I would say it's geopolitical and physical. And that is... Wherever we take up physical space as Christians in a fellowship in a church, we are the land promise going all around the globe. All right, now, not all agree with that, but it doesn't matter. I'm right on that one. <laughs> For the next two minutes, then you can do with you what, what you want. I don't want to make a big, uh, big push on this, but now I come to Sean Palmer's quiz. My view of the kingdom is very Church of Christ, and I wasn't aware how Churches of Christ it was until the infallible theologian John Mark Hicks from Lipscomb University <laughs> sent me a letter in which he sent me a piece of bibliography from Alexander Campbell. Uh, are we getting back to the bottom? Uh, he came, he was just after Jesus and Paul. Right? In 1834, he wrote an article on the kingdom of heaven, and he said it has five elements. Listen. 
A constitution. Oh, he's an American. All right. A king. Subjects. People. Laws. I'd put that with constitution. And territory. How am I doing, Sean? I think I'd like to correct Alexander a little bit by saying that this king rules by way of redemption. All right? And I know he believed that. So I know I'm right today because I'm with the churches of Christ. <laughs> Five elements. Now, this is what it means. The most important thing you can do is establish a church in your community and embody the kingdom of God in that local church by contributing to it and by living it out. If this kingdom, this is where the skinny jeans people are so right. They know that the kingdom's idea of the Old Testament is about justice and peace and love and reconciliation. All right? Your church should be a community where justice flows between people in your church, where peace lives and flows between people in your church, where love is established as the ruling ethic of this community. And only then do you have a platform to speak into the public sector. This makes it hypocritical for you to be a people at war with one another and then go into the public sector and advocate for peace. And when people are not experiencing justice in your church, when justice is not established, when socioeconomic lines are drawn with a big, thick pencil, when people who are poor are experiencing poverty and impoverishment in your church because of the systems that have been established. In other words, you want to create justice in and among the people in your church as a living alternative to the world system that we see today. And then we gain credibility to go into the public sector and say, come join us. We've learned to follow Jesus in the way of the kingdom of God.